This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alladay. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to Fans on the Run. At this present moment in time, the luckiest Beatles podcast. We have a very special guest with us today. One of, I think he may be the most important guest we've had. I met him briefly on an escalator at an event he was running. I recognized him. I I told him how his event was the first time I had genuinely been happy in about a year since my dad had died. We shook hands, and I enjoyed the rest of the event. That event was the 2019 Chicago Fest for Beatles fan, and the man whose hand I shook is our guest for today. He's been organizing the fest, originally called Beatle Fest, since 1974, and it is my privilege to have him on the show. Mark Lapidos, welcome to Fans on the Run. Hey, Ethan, thank you very much. Good to be here. Certainly a thrill. How are you today? <laughs> uh, I'm, do- I'm doing good. I woke up not too long ago, so I feel like I'm not my sharpest. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Well, ask what you like. How, how have you been dealing with this whole, you know, corona lockdown thing? Um, well, we've been staying away from stores. I haven't been in a store since uh, about March 12th. Um, <laughs> I pick up things, on the, you know, curbside deliveries. Food is delivered to our houses and our house, I should say. And uh, just saw our daughters for the first time together last week because it was Father's Day and our anniversary. So we saw them, uh-huh. and uh, one of them we hadn't seen in, since early March. She only lived in Brooklyn, nice. so it's made it even more difficult that we couldn't see her. Mm-hmm. But we saw them, Michelle and Jessica, or Tilly, as she's known now. Mm-hmm. How are they doing? Uh, they're doing well. Uh, you know, Tilly's been out uh, protesting uh, all the stuff that's going on in our country peacefully. Mm-hmm. With masks on, she says that almost everyone in New York wears a mask all the time, which is not always the case in the other parts of the country. But uh, she's been very careful, and uh, change is happening in this country. We we need change. We really do need change, and and we need it soon. And I think it's going to happen. As I'll long as it's it. change for the better. It is change for the better right. completely. Since this show is about Beatles fans, um, there are a few things as synonymous with the Beatles fan community as the fests, so it only seemed, like, appropriate to have you on the show. Well, here I am. Uh, first thing I wanted to ask, because last night I was, uh, I pulled out the Ruddles Archaeology CD, you, your wife, Carol, Beatlefest as a whole, and the band Liverpool were all mentioned in the liner notes. How did that happen? Well, uh, we had Neil as a special guest, Neil Innes, in 1994 or five for the first time. And what a wonderful guest he was. He had no idea that anyone even remembered who the Ruddles was, were. <laughs> he was blown away by it. And it inspired him to work on and actually release uh, a lot of the things that never got out before. Plus, he edits some new songs that he created. Uh, just for the archaeology album, and you know he played uh, he played a whole bunch of Ruddle songs on 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 the stage with, with our band Liverpool that's still with us. They've been with us since 1979, mm-hmm. 
And uh, he just loved the event. And it just, we just, of all the guests we've ever had, uh, he was the one who I became, we became most friendly with as a, as a, just not just as a special guest, but as a, as a person. We got together quite a bit when he was in the country, when he toured. He was living in England at the time. And, um, yeah, we've been, we've had him over many, many times. And he's just sharpest guy, uh, brightest, clever. You know, it was like the six Monty Python. And we had him scheduled to be a, an, an added guest in March of this of this year that had to be postponed. When we got the, this very sad news that he had passed away suddenly at the end of December of this past year. Uh, he had a new album coming out and uh, it's terrific. It, it was finished already before he passed and uh, you know, we're proud enough to be the only place in the world where you actually can get copies of the album, of the CD, and it's really good. And he was very clever with words and, I, and we miss him like crazy. And, um, I know all the fans miss him. We love them. That's that's one of my biggest regrets that I was never able to meet him in person. Because really? I'm I'm such a fan of his work, you know, not even just the Ruddles, you know. Uh I'm a huge fan of the Bonzo Dog Doodah band. Okay. I'm sure you've seen Magical yeah. Mystery Tour. <laughs> uh unfortunately. What do you mean unfortunately? I, I did not have a great experience watching that movie for the first time. Oh, the first? Well, maybe you would, When did you watch it? How old were you? Um, well, I've watched it subsequent times okay. since. I was I was 11 when I first saw it. And it was the scene where um, John Lennon was shoveling spaghetti onto uh, yeah. Ringo's aunt's plate. Mm-hmm. And, and I had to make a run for the bathroom because it was so disgusting. <laughs> Well, it was disgusting. Or it was it was funny. It was it was it was it was humor. It was like uh, not dark humor, but you, know, you look at it, and say, oh! But you know, any film that has the promotional film of "I'm the Walrus" wins in my book. Actually, Paul said that too. Well, we also we also said one of the greatest songs ever, and just there it was the whole a, a promotional film. And the film, you know, film was was ahead of its time. It wasn't. It was put out at the Christmas yeah. time, so people thought it was going to be a Christmas event, and it was shown in black and white in the BBC um, on Boxing Day, day after Christmas, and uh, mm-hmm. people didn't get it. They didn't get the visuals of it. They didn't get the the um, the looseness of it, and the you know, they were trying to do something totally different, and they did. I can't. I can't speak for America, but I know that part of the thing that added to its, uh, you know, underwhelmingness was it was the BBC was broadcasting in color at that time, but the show was broadcast in black and white. Right, the week later they in January they were they showed it again in color, it was a little yeah. more well received. But in black and white, that's just not going to work so well. No, but you know, it's uh, the music. Hey, take a look at the music. Your mother should know. Fool on the Hill. Those were great, mm-hmm. uh, great scenes. You know, Fool on the Hill was. Hey, he, Paul and Mal got up one morning. Mal told me this story uh, in 1975 when he was a guest. Mal Evans, and he said, "We just." Paul said, "I wanted to. We got to go to France to, to shoot the video for this." And with no money in their pockets, no identification, 
they did it. Uh, he's a Beatle, Paul, you know, so they just did it. They got over there. I don't know how they got there, but they got to the Alps. It was freezing and they did that scene and it's a great song, you know? So, you know, there was a lot of good, a lot of terrific music in it. And, Mm -hmm. um, not every, you know, it was a, it was a, as George would say, avant-garde, avant-garde a clue. Yeah. And, uh, but it was, you know, it, it, it stands the test of time that it, it, it puts something into the culture that hadn't been there before. So let's leave it at that. Yeah, it, it deserves its place on my shelf next to Help and Yellow Submarine as one of great, the Beatles movies. Plus it's also a great album in America. We, we had three, all six hits from the year on that one album. Mm-hmm. There was three singles released in 1968, and they were all on this album. So the one American album that was so good that the British even took notice. That's right. That's right. See that? They didn't have an album for so, a long um, time. It took them till they just had the double EP. It was any double EP, right? It's just the songs on side one. So <laughs> they never got an album with "All You Need Is Love" and "Baby You're a Rich Man" and, and "Hello Goodbye" and um, "I Am the Walrus." It, I think that may be my favorite no second favorite Beatles album Revolver is still number one okay but I won't get too ahead of myself okay alright when did you first discover the Beatles January 6 1964 I was about to turn 16 years old and I had never heard of them it was the first day back at school that that, that winter recess because Christmas and New Year's fell on a Wednesday, we got two weeks off. And we were, I was up in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, where, where, where reception was very poor, and I, I think I may have forgotten to bring my radio for some reason, or it just wasn't working. So I heard nothing. I come home Monday night, go to sleep, or Sunday night, go to sleep, get up, come home from school, do my homework, 7.45, Scott Muni, one of the most famous DJs of all time. Mm-hmm. You may even know who he, who he was. Do you, you know who Scott Muni mm-hmm. was? Yes. Okay, good. Well, he was on WABC, which was the biggest radio station in the United States at that time. And all of a sudden, he says, I has a new song, and he starts playing it. And within, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 seconds, I sort of jump up and sit at the end of my bed, and I, I said, what the heck? What is this? What I, I was so excited. Who is this? What is this? What, what, what's going on here? It just it blew me away. It just absolutely blew me away. And then after the song, Scott Muni gets on and says, "That's uh, I want to hold your hand by the Beatles from from England." And my first re- reply thought in my head was, "What a strange name for for uh, a group." The next day, I come home from school. Tuesday was new survey day and the song was number one. So the second time I ever heard that song in my life, it was the number one record in New York. That's how it felt. Oh, wow. I know it came, it was played in New York all Christmas week, but I wasn't around to hear it. So January 6th mm-hmm. was the first day. Uh, and um, a few weeks later, my brother bought me introducing the Beatles for my birthday. Couldn't buy me meet the Beatles because that didn't come out till the next day. So I got introduced to the Beatles. And um, 
I was hooked right from the beginning. You know, it's, it's you hear other fans my age talk about it, and at the fest, we we do talk about it. They, you know, they they grab me so hard that the first time I heard the song, and it, it's never let go. Fifty six years later, I I feel that same way about hearing the Beatles for the first time, even though it was nearly fifty years later. Um, but you know, as soon as I heard Sergeant Pepper on my little CD player, it just grabbed me by the jugular and did not let go. Mm. Wonderful. Not the seat, not the CD player, the, the, the concept of the music. The music oh, the music. Uh-huh. Yes. I, I sort of figured that. Even. Um, yeah, yeah. See, the Sergeant Pepper, you know, when that came out, I was in uh, your country. Really? Yes. I went to Expo 67. In Montreal. In Montreal, and little did I know that your your premier, your main um, Beatles expert in the country, Piers Hemmingson. Hemmingson, mm-hmm. do you know who he is? I've had him on. Oh, the yeah, show. good. Okay, well, he told me only last the last fest, the one before that, that he was there also. He was at the British um, Pavilion, and they were mm-hmm. playing Sgt. Pepper. Probably the day I was really? there, but I didn't know about that. Didn't know anything about it. We didn't know Beatle, a new Beatles album was coming because we didn't know. They just happened. It wasn't like now that we know. Mm-hmm. Now we know Flaming Pride is coming out July thirty first. The remastered box set. We didn't know anything back in those days. Mm-hmm. You just found out by hearing it on the radio. So uh, we were driving back to New Jersey on that Saturday and AM radio only could hardly get any station. So I'm fiddling around, turning the dial. You that's a, a, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. On a radio, you used to have a dial that you could turn the... No, I, I know what you're talking about. Okay. And I'm trying to just get any music, just here to hear anything. <laughs> and all of a sudden I'm hearing the first two notes of the song I never heard with Scratchy. So it was like, and I hear the vaguest of music in as far away from my ears as I can hear it. And I I said, a new Beatles record. I, I knew it immediately, had no idea what it was, didn't know it was coming, but I knew it was, I knew it was a Beatles song. Even though I could hardly hear it through all that scratchiness. And I got home that night. It was too late to go to any store to find out. We had no internet back in 1967. Sunday, almost all the stores were closed. But one store was open, a place called Two Guys from Harrison in New Jersey. They opened at 10 o'clock. I called them at 10 o'clock sharp, got to the record department, and said, is there a new Beatles album? I said, yes, it just came in. Well, I think about six minutes later, I was at the store. And they had a whole rack of only Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. And I bought myself a copy and came home and listened to the whole thing. And with my brother, my older brother, who was not really a big music fan, um, but he listened. And he has a comment which I've never let him forget. Um, at the end, when uh, Sgt. Pepper Reprise comes on and then Day in the Life, and he says, what did they put that, that song on for? It's a filler. 
film, A Day in the Life. Well, the, the Sergeant Pepper into Day in the Life, a, a filler. That's what he called. Oh, that's his musical taste. Oh, the greatest wow. compositions in all of history, and he described it as a filler. So, now, now the important question is: When he got that record, was it in stereo or mono? Mono. How could you, you, weren't allowed, you couldn't play stereo records on mono record players because that's what we were told. We didn't know it was a lie. It was, it yeah. was a lie to get people to buy stereo. The next, the next album that came out when I went to get Magic Mystery Tour, I was at school, university, and I bought like a dozen of them because all the people, I had a car and the, the kids in the dorm didn't have them. So I took orders. There was like seven monos and five stereos. And all they had was stereo, the first shipment. So I didn't know what anyone else wanted, so I just bought the stereo. And I went to a store and bought a stereo on the spot so I could play it. Oh, wow. I, what can I do? Well, we couldn't play it on mono. That's what we were told. And we didn't know better. And just later, yeah. a year or two later, the word started creeping out that you could, it, mono needles would not ruin a stereo record. Yeah. So... So that was my experience. I was the one to go to the record store in Long Island and pick out a whole bunch of copies, but they didn't have a mono. And I was furious. But what did anyway? Then bought a stereo so I could hear it. Because I couldn't go back to the dormitory and play to my mono record player. So I had to buy a stereo. Yeah. What could I do? I'm lucky I had enough money to buy it. I must have been the cheapest. I can't remember. It must have been a real cheap one. <laughs> oh, a yeah. baby deer. Oh. At my office. Um, so there's a couple of stories for you. What would you like to ask next? So aside from, you know, Sergeant Pepper, Magical Mystery Tour, do you have any other memories of, like, the album releases being kind of big events and, you know, going, lining up at the store to, like, pick up the records? Um... Lining up at the store, I bought Rubber Solar Day came out. Once before that, you know, we didn't we didn't know release dates. You know, it wasn't like we knew when they were coming out. So we it's like you just had to be there. You got in the when it first, around when it came out. Um, there was no fanfare except for the fact that we knew that we we heard a new single and we were told there was a new album coming out. That was like a couple of days before it was released, December of '65. Uh, there was nothing about Revolver. I knew it was coming. I guess I heard it from somewhere, maybe a day or so, and a day or two before. And I went to the local store up in the Catskills, and they had it. So I listened to that all the rest of the summer. Um, Abbey Road, October 1st, 1969. I was out of college. I graduated in June. My money was spent. I had no money because I hadn't gotten a job yet. I didn't know what I was doing because I wanted to I wanted to work for the Beatles, actually, was my thought. And I lived at home, so I paid no rent. So on that very day, I decided to go to Sam Goody, which was the largest record chain on the East Coast and really was the biggest one in the country, but it was just the East Coast. So I, went into the one. I think it's still around. No, 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 not for a long time. Uh, but they did last a while. And there was a real guy, Sam Goody, too. Really? Yes. 
In fact, I'll tell you that story in a minute. Um, so I walked into the same building for Amnesty Jersey and was going to go to the manager and ask for a job. I figured if I couldn't get a job with the Beatles, for the Beatles, I would sell, try to get a job selling their records. So I went to the biggest record store, just uh, two miles from my house. And there on the counter was Abbey Road. So what do I do? Ask for a job or buy the record as fast as I can and go home and listen to it. Well, there's, there's no choice. I have to buy the record yeah. immediately and go home and listen to it all night, <clears throat> which I did. The next day I came back and got a job at Sam Goody, where I worked there for five years. I became management, and uh, I was known as the Beatle Maniac of the Sam Goody chain. There was eight stores when we started, and probably about 14 or 15 stores when I, after I came up with the Beatle Fest idea in, 60, in 73, 74. Um, but that's where I worked, and when I, even when I went on vacation and was the record manager and told people and my staff I said here's here's the one rule never run out of a Beatles record <laughs> that was my primary rule in the store and uh, that was the weekend of the Bangladesh concert when I was away for three weeks on vacation in California I took a red eye because I found out that the concert was going to happen the day I was in the last day of, in California I said that can't be so I took a flight come back, I guess, the red eye, and then went to Madison Square Garden and saw the, probably the greatest concert I've ever seen in my life. You saw the concert for Bangladesh? I sure did. I was there in the afternoon concert. And, oh, my uh, God. I was, sitting, I was sitting in the second row where you could actually buy tickets because Alan Klein mm -hmm. bought the first, like, 20, 25 rows of tickets for whoever he wanted. But I had a seat in the second row, like, so on the floor, and if you listen real hard, you still can't hear it. But I was the first one to to scream out when I saw George walking to the stage, because I just knew in my heart that he was had to be the MC. I just knew it. Nobody told me that, but I just knew he was. So I I knew where the entrance was to the stage, and I'm looking at it without a uh, had better eyes in those days. Um, just looking at the where the little exit light was and just watching for him. And I saw it. Mm -hmm. And I started screaming about four or five seconds before everybody else. I'm going to have to pull out my copy of Concert for Bangladesh yeah. and listen for that. Yes. See, my ears, I could hear it because I know it was, I know I was yelling. So, but you could tell me if you hear it. If you hear someone, vain, you know, I wasn't near the microphone. I was 20, 26 rows, 28 rows away from the stage. But I was the first one. I got up and people were looking at me. What the hell's going on? But within four or five seconds, they figured it out. Uh, you brought up something which I was going to get into. Uh, the early beginnings of the fest. Yes. How did, how did that come about, the Fest for Beatles fans, back in... 70, 73 and 74. Well, as I said, I, I was sitting over a dish of vanilla ice cream on a Saturday night in Upper East Side, New York, and I'm saying, somebody should do something. This is November of 1973. I was still working at Sam Goody. I was saying, somebody should do something to celebrate the 10th anniversary of the Beatles' arrival in America. And the word Beatlefest should have just popped in my head, and I got this whole idea of vision if you will, of what it would be like. 
you know, films and people playing music and concerts and stories and, you know, everything to do with the selling and marketplace and everything to do with the Beatles. I mean, I knew there were mm-hmm. lots of Beatles fans around. 73 was a yeah. big year in the Beatles world. Lots of releases, major releases. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I sat with the idea for a few months. And then early 74, I decided, why not? And I decided to book the hotel with my own money and said to everybody I knew, I'm not going to do this show without the Beatles' permission. Mm-hmm. And in that period of time, they were suing each other, as we all know by at this point. And mm-hmm. so people thought I was sort of nuts. Were you going yeah. to get permission? They, they're, they're suing each other, and you were 26-year-old kid, 25 years old at the time. Are you going to get permission? I said, yeah. I said, how? I'm just going to do it. I wrote them all letters, cassette letters, sent them all. Never heard back. And then on April 28th, 1974, April 26th, on Friday night, two nights before, Cousin Brucey, who also worked on WABC, right? He had the biggest show of everybody, all the DJs. And he's still going strong on Sirius XM on Sixes and Six. He's good old Cousin Brucey. Cousin Brucey. And he's become a friend of ours over the years. And um, he announced on Friday night, John Lennon and Harry Nielsen were going to be appearing in Central Park for the March of Dimes um, event. It was the first March of Dimes event in Central Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all these years later. It's still going on. It's a walkathon. With con- it was a, was it a walkathon? It, it was a walkathon then, and concerts now. I forgot already. I think it's mm-hmm. anyway. Um, One of the two. It's still going on, and it was a concert. Um, by uh, the Fifth Dimension at the time, they were the one they were going to be the main oh. guest. But John and Harry were going to come on and be interviewed and talked a while with Cousin Brucey. So I said, mm-hmm. "I'm going to meet John on Sunday." How? I'm just going to meet him on Sunday. I mean, that's a bold statement. I was bold. That's why people thought I was nuts. Half a million people? No, it was a couple. It was a hundred thousand people in Central Park. And, you know, how was I going to do it? Well, it just so happened that that week at Sam Goody, uh, usually every couple of months there was a, there was a, a record, la- each record label had sales. So there'd be Columbia Records, mm-hmm. Decca Records, and uh, RCA and Capitol. And every few months, the Capitol sale would be a Beatles sale. Mm-hmm. Sale and Beatles record. Come into the store. You had to come in the store those days, Ethan. You couldn't buy them online. Online didn't exist. Couldn't buy them anywhere. I still prefer to come to the stores. Oh, good. I wish there were record stores around. Enough record stores, but there are still a few. Um, but they were the place to hang out. I mean, the same goodie, as I told you, in Paramus was the biggest record store of their chain. And it was the biggest, one of the biggest record stores probably in the whole country at that time. And people would come in the store and, and look for new records, new music. So our job was not just to sell records, was to to open up ideas for people. What, what I, I like this group. What, what what do you think? I what kind of new music is out there? You think I might like? So it was more like a place to hang out, and a place. It was a cool place to be in a record store. 
So we had a special on all Beatles records that week, the whole chain. Mm -hmm. Somehow, I guess through my being a Beatle nut, I knew that Capitol Records was making, had made 10th anniversary shirts, promotional shirts, blue shirts with the number 10 on them, with the Beatles on it. Mm -hmm. So I called Capitol Records in, in uh, New York. It was just a few blocks from the, from the um, store in Manhattan when I started working there. And they said they knew nothing about it. So I didn't like that answer. So I called Capitol in Hollywood, in the tower. Where I was, I said, sure, we have them. I said, can you send me a whole bunch? I have uh, the, the biggest record store in New York City. It was Radio City's store, by the way. It's right across, right next door to Radio City Music Hall. Oh, wow. They had made me manager with one of the managers of that store. So I moved from being in the Paramus store to being in the New York City store. So they sent me a whole box of shirts, which only I gave out. Nobody else, just me. I had complete control over it, sort of on the lock and key. So I gave it to all my staff to wear all week for the sale. Mm -hmm. So back to Central Park. I'm where it's a beautiful late April day. 82 degrees was the record high. It was the high for the day. So I wore my shirt. And I'm sitting there a few hours ahead of time, just getting ready. And I see a guy far away from me, maybe 200 300 feet that he was wearing the same shirt as I was wearing and he had and I didn't know who he was so I get up and I start walking over there to him it's you know between me and him it's just a sea of people so I'm saying oh excuse me excuse me excuse me I get, finally get to the guy and I look at him and say where'd you get that shirt so he tells me this story that I was driving around in my pickup truck last night in Times Square and I see these two guys sitting uh, on the corner of 42nd Street and Time there, Time Times Square, looking a little bit uh, perhaps inebriated, we'll say. Oh, I got yeah. out of the car and he obviously recognized who they were. I said, could I give you a lift any place? And John, who was sitting there with Harry Nielsen, said, Could you, would you mind giving us a lift back to the our hotel? So he did. And John invited him upstairs. They talked for like 10 or 15 minutes. And uh, John gave him a, a signed an autograph and gave him one of these shirts. Really? Really. So I said, what hotel is here? He says, oh, he's at the, the Pierre Hotel right across the street. I said, what room? He says, 1019. I, I may not remember the number right, but... He gave me the room number. So of 100,000 people in this in this big Central Park area, the only one who would have known who where he was was this one person. And because it was a nice day and he was wearing the same shirt I was wearing, I found him. I wish I would have gotten his name and number. But I never did. Never saw him again. So John and Harry came out and talking to Cousin Brucey for about 15. You've, you've probably seen the video of it. You can find it on YouTube, everybody. Yeah. And uh, we were sitting pretty close to the stage, maybe 100 feet, 50 feet, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Not that far away because we got there early. So after after the uh, talk, uh, got up and walked to the hotel and found the elevators, 
sat down on a little bench. <sighs> Take some deep breaths, Mark. Calm down. Stay cool. And push the elevator button. Went up to the that floor. Knocked on. No, I rang the bell. There was a little bell. I guess it was a big suite. Um, mm -hmm. Harry Nielsen opens the door. And I said, hi, I'm Mark Lapidus. I'd like to speak to John about Beetlefest. So he looked at me and said, come on in. Just like that. Um, and to stop the story there for a second, Harry became a dear friend of ours because after John was assassinated, he became the um, national spokesperson for gun control. And we immediately started raising money for gun control, which we still do. And we were on the East Coast, he was on the West Coast, and he started, uh, we invited him to the fest. And he became a fest regular, raising money for gun control and, and speaking and performing on our stage. And he never, he was known as the uh, rock star that never performed on stage. But he did many, many times on our stage. But he had, Is this how the Harry Nielsen kissing booth started? We had the Harry Nielsen, Nielsen kissing booth, which my wife, that, that picture you see on their little records, uh, my wife created that sign on the spot, and Harry recorded the song over the bullet that we still offer all these years later. Um, and he recorded on our anniversary that year, 1982, wow. in, in LA. Uh, and within 10 days, we had it at the fest. But so Harry, oh, wow. and somewhere in that, in one of the years in LA, I have it on a beta. Harry described that moment when I when he opened the door for me. His description was something like this. <laughs> I have to find that, that beta tape because it's priceless and I need it. So I walked in and yeah. sat down. And a few minutes later, John came into the parlor, shook his hand and sat down and told my whole idea about Beetlefest. And... At the, he got very excited about asking questions, and he said, I'm all for it. I'm a Beatles fan, too. Wow. I can still see him saying it right this very moment, Ethan. I will never forget that moment. Obviously, the most important non-personal moment of my life, but it was personal. But, I mean, mm -hmm. birth of kids and getting married and stuff, but aside but yeah john said that to me he said come back on tuesday and we'll get all we'll get everything set up so i came back on tuesday and boom and the rest is history first show was september 7th and 8th 1974 in new york city at the old commodore hotel well, what was the response to the beetle fest from the other three beetles um well, I mentioned that I told John I wanted to do a charity raffle. And he picked, I said, would you want to pick the charity organization? He said, yes, the uh, Phoenix House Foundation was a um, was a drug rehab place just uptown a little bit from where they were living, where John and Yoko were living. And um, so that's what he picked. And I said, I'd like to get, you know, autographs from everybody. He said, I have a guitar in my attic. I'll sign it for you, which he did. And Ringo got, I got drum signed drumsticks from Ringo uh, very quickly, I think within a month. This was like April, so May, June, July, were four months, just over four months between that moment and the show. Uh, the week before the fest, um, Tony King was the vice president of Apple, 
in U.S. Mm -hmm. He was the liaison. And he said, did you ever get your your signed things from, from Paul, George, and Ringo? I said, I got the drumsticks. I never heard, never got anything from Paul and, and George. So John called Paul and called George and said, how come you haven't sent anything? They both said, we didn't know about it. Never got to the point where they had heard about it. Too many people oh, wow. in between. So John got through to them and made sure that we got autographs. Uh, it was on such short notice that John had a, a, one of Paul's old guitar that he bought in Spain. So John signed that guitar, saying it was Paul's. And he had the tabla that George used in, in Within You Without You. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was pretty amazing. So those were the four things, and the whole event was covered as a cover story of Rolling Stone, October 24th, 1974. And then there was a picture. Strange Rumblings in Pepperland. Strange Rumblings in Pepperland. That's exactly right. So the biggest story you can get is to be on the cover of Rolling Stone. In the year that there was a big song called Cover of Rolling Stone that the group got actually on the cover of Rolling Stone. I can't remember if it was a week before, week or two weeks before, or two weeks after me. But we made the cover of Rolling Stone. And uh, the show was a, a complete success. Um, even though um, on Long Island, they two weeks before they announced the concert at Roosevelt Stadium, Roosevelt Field, uh, the state, the uh, racetrack, 77,000 people came. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, Joni Mitchell, and the Beach Boys all played together. Oh, wow. But that didn't affect our attendance. We still sold out completely. You couldn't get any more people there. And the San Gennaro Festival was going on at the same time. They had like 2 million people there. But we did it. We did it. We got great stories about it. And the New York Times interviewed me on that Saturday. It, was just, it showed up in the Sunday paper. And I wore my white suit that I got married in. No, wait, that was, wait, white suit, 19, that one is the same kind of suit that I got married in two years later, but I wore, I hadn't met my wife yet, um, but I wore a white suit with orange shirt, orange socks, because that's what George wore at the concert for Bangladesh three years earlier. Mm -hmm. So, um, that picture, I think it was a, was there a picture of me in the, in the paper? I can't, I can't remember, but the story ran the next day. I think there was a picture. And uh, the rest is history. How do we? It was a one convention idea, but we got so many calls and letters, no emails, sorry, no texts, sorry, didn't exist, from people all over the country saying, "Can you bring it here? Bring it to Chicago? Bring it to LA?" So, did it the second year in in New York City. It was another huge success. We had Sid Bernstein as our special guest. The first year, he was the first guest. That we invited he was in central park that day really yes yeah, so i met him we met him and, and told him what we're gonna do and he said of course i'll be there and then we got the uh, murray the k inf infamously known as the fifth beetle to be a to be our M one of our mcs so he was there and um the second year we had mal evans the only year he was a special guest in 75 and that was also covered in Rolling Stone and uh, wow he wanted to he was telling tell me he was writing a book and wanted to be part of the fest he just loved it he paid me the biggest compliment I ever had in my life which was at the end of the weekend he said Mark you know 
picture, you know, you got to think Mal Evans. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure you know his history. Mal Evans was a Beatles roadie. His, his only job was to be, was to take care of, of his four Beatles. Mm-hmm. He took it very seriously, and that's what he did. All right, so anything going on around him, the Beatles were his priority. He told me, because at the show, he was people lining up to get his autograph, and people, the ballroom was full when he talked, and people shaking his hands, taking pictures. He said, Mark, this was the greatest weekend of my life. Mal Evans told you Mal that. Mal Evans told me that. And I'm thinking to myself, my God, I would trade a hundred of my weekends for one of his weekends. <laughs> and that was, you know, when, when we watched Magic Mystery Tour, I wish I would have taken notes. I was sitting with Mal, and he was telling me all the behind-the-scenes things that were going on, which not all of them have gotten out, but the one about Fool on the Hill in France, we all know, but he was telling me that. <laughs> That's the story where I heard it from. I didn't hear it from a source. I heard it from the source who went with Paul while I'm watching the movie with Mal Evans. Oh, my God. We, we just, Paul wanted to go to France, so we just went to France. We had Mark, we had no ID, no no. No money on us. We just went. I guess it had a cameraman, or the cameraman met him there. That he didn't get the details, but we, he knows he knew where he wanted to go. Is it sure? Try to do it nowadays, right? But you're a Beatle. You can do what you want, especially back then. I wanted to ask, uh, how did the fest go from being named Beatle Fest to the Fest for Beatles fans? Oh, that was just a uh, an agreement we had with with uh, Apple. To be able to change the name and continue as we were doing. How does it feel that the fest is going almost 50 years later? Well, 46 years right now. Uh, 46 years. It's amazing. It's it's like, uh, you know, it started out as a one convention idea. Um, I've been very privileged to meet everybody involved with the Beatles story except Brian. Everybody. I met all four Beatles. I met the Ringo a couple more times. I met Paul a few times. I met John numerous, a number of times in the city. And um, it's like, it's what an honor, what a privilege to be able to do this, you know, to be able to, mm-hmm. to share our common love. You know, conventions, you know, the only thing that was going on at the time that resembled us, but it really wasn't, was Star Trek conventions, mm-hmm. which were based on actors. Yeah. Nothing wrong with that. I loved the show. I used to watch it all the time as a, as a, as a kid, young adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was a, an, as an honor to the greatest musical uh, conglomeration of the 20th century, maybe ever. Gonna, I'd say ever. I'd say ever also. And, um, you know, they're going to look back in 500 years and they're still going to be playing Beatles music and, and they, learning about it. It could be 12 million books by then. <laughs> but we, aren't there already 12 million Beatle books? No, there's probably a few, 3,000. I don't know if anyone's ever kept track, but a couple thousand. But we've gotten to meet everybody. I mean, the, all the people who worked at Apple, uh, Klaus Vorman, 
he's become a friend. He was he's also the one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. And the people that were around him and influenced them and be, was a part of their organization were really outstanding people. And it wasn't like the, the Beatles picked these people, it's just that they had an inner you know, they had a sense of of personality. So when they met Klaus, who was a real tr- first Beatle fan in the, in the Reeperbahn in Hamburg, he saw them. He had had a fight with Astrid that night, and he saw them, and he went right back to Astrid. You got to come back. To, we got to go back tomorrow night. You, you got to see this group. You won't believe it. You got to see them. So they came back, and you know, look how influential Astrid was. She gave me a look. She helped give them a haircut, along with Jürgen Vollmer and. And Klaus and the black doll from the Hamburg days, and she gave them a look. The Beatles had no look at that point. Then they came back to Liverpool, and you know, going through a lot of chapters. The rest is history. But it, but all the people who worked at, who worked at Apple, Derek Taylor was a sweetheart. It was. Uh, one of the most eloquent, probably the most eloquent PR people ever. Mm-hmm. He just knew how to write and how to uh, create excitement. Um, we had so many people worked at Apple, uh, Apple recording artists, Badfinger, we had three out of four of them there. Um, I could go on and on about it, but there's just so many people, all the people written books about them. Um, who were part of the Beatles, so Jerry, Jerry Marsden, Billy J. Kramer, uh, Terry Sylvester of the Hollies, um, The Searchers, um, Peter, Peter and Gordon, I'm saving that up, Chad and Jeremy. And now we've had Peter many times over the past recent years, and he's become, uh, with his weekly show on uh, the Beatles channel, he's like the biggest thing now. He put out his book. I'm sure you know about the book, The Beatles A to Z. Every copy we've sold has been signed or book plate signed, a few of them more recently because of the COVID. And mm-hmm. it's the bigger, by far the biggest selling book we've ever had, ever. Go figure. But he, Go he figure. loved. So oh, we had Peter Noon. We've had, some, you know, Hermits Hermits. Mickey Dolans. It just, the list goes on and on. And, and all those people added to the element. The Ruddles, we had almost had all four. We had three Ruddles. And we had the reunion mm-hmm. of the Ruddles. We had the Quarrymen. We had the reunion of the Quarrymen. Six of them. Everybody. Five wow. Yeah. Even Pete Shotton. We had Pete Shotton as a guest. He was a you know John's best friend outside the Beatles. And um, we've had all we had all the Quarrymen there. And Ronnie Spector. I, I just, you know, I can go on forever. Donovan. We've had Donovan. I think he's the biggest guest we've ever had. I love Donovan. I, I, me too. I, to, to me, he's my favorite guest we ever had. That's me personally, but everybody else is just, I mean, I could go on for a long time just talking about the guests there, and they've all been gracious and signing um, autographs and taking pictures with people. And, um, a lot of them premiered their books or whatever they were putting out at the fests, make it a special event. So, you know, it's 
it's it's like it's a place where people the hardcore fans can go it's like a beatles thanksgiving it is i've heard it described as the beatles thanksgiving yes about the fighting (laughs) yeah but you don't know about thanksgiving much because you're not from you don't have a thanksgiving right we do have Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's just a month. Be- it's just a month right, before yours. Sure. Is it the same reasoning? I mean, is it the same? Uh, I think so. Okay. I I don't really know much about the reason why. Oh. Yeah. We have a reason. But anyway, um, so there you go. Anything else you'd like to ask? I'm gonna hit you with some quick fire questions. Go ahead. What is your favorite Beatles song? Hey Jude. Song what is your le- What is your least favorite Beatles song? My least favorite. I don't really have a least favorite. If I had to name the top two hundred, then there'd be what eleven to sixteen songs not listed. Um, but no, they, I love them all. I do some more than others, some a lot more than others. Mm-hmm. But the worst ones are still good and very good. Yeah. Okay. The Beatles songs don't go from good to bad. They go from good to great. They go from really, really very good to fantastic. And the amount of songs that, I mean, Donovan said it on stage at the fest. He said, you know, something special about the Beatles. I, me, I had a great career and uh, people know nine of my songs that people, that if that's in the general culture. Mm-hmm. Beatles have 150 songs that everybody knows. <laughs> That's a big difference. What is your favorite Beatles album? <clears throat> I don't know. It, it varies. Um, top three. Top three. Boy, it's so tough. It really is. The tough top three, top two would be uh, the White Album and Abbey Road. Third one would vary. It would vary between Pepper and 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 Revolver and Meet the Beatles, Rub the Soul, even Magic Mystery Tour, although I'm trying to keep it just to the albums that the Beatles created, not the ones that were created by Capitol. <clears throat> and Revolver, we, Who is your- we didn't get Revolver like you did. You know that whole Well, we got, the, we got the same Revolver you did. No, you didn't. And you were born yeah, in 66. Yeah, you got 14 songs, didn't you? Oh, I thought you just meant Canada in general. Yeah, we didn't get Revolver. We got 11 songs of which some were not, three were missing. And the three songs that were missing were John's songs that ended up in Yesterday and Today. We didn't get Revolver the same way. Canada still got that messed up version of Revolver. Oh, you got that also then. Okay. I I, I wasn't quite aware of that. Everything after the first three albums was the same as the States. Okay, so Sgt. Pepper changed everything. The Beatles got their new contract and insisted that they had full control over what was put out. Who is your favorite Beatle? <laughs> uh, it, you know, it, it's an impossible question to ask. It, it, I, I don't have a favorite. I just love them all. You can pick up to four. John, Paul, George, and Ringo. You know, what's what was so special about them, Ethan, which I'm sure you're learning about and know, is that the four of them together was so much bigger than the four of them, so much bigger as a group than individually. The energy they had in the recording studio, 
all that stuff was 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 all of them. Just because it was a John and Paul song for the most part, it doesn't mean that Ringo and George didn't have anything to do with it. The, mm-hmm. You listen to the listen to those the drum beats that Ringo puts in <clears throat> tons of songs. You know, Beatles, they, they, John and Paul recorded the song, had a number one song. What next? Let's not do anything that we just did. We got to do something different. Mm-hmm. Listen to all the all the drumming, and then go back and listen to George's guitar work. That wasn't like, oh, they're in a studio. Okay, here's a boom, boom, boom. He'd go back and work and think about what would be what would add to the to this song. What could I put in on a, on a lead guitar that would add to it? The obviously obvious one is "And I Love Her," that we all know about. But if you go back and listen with headphones to the new new Abbey Road, which I did on a plane before COVID started, I was hearing all the guitar leads that George was doing. I hadn't heard, they were, they were, they were buried somewhat in the mix, but the new mix, you could really hear him clearly. And there was so much of George in there. So much of of him in, in the, the playing of those, of those notes that it just, it's, it's absolutely incredible. And that it's like, it wasn't just John and Paul who had, that's how it started. John and Paul were the, were the main writers, and rightfully so. So they wrote the music. But putting it together was a group effort. And that's what made all those every single one of those songs special. They just knew how to... Why do the... Oh, oh no, sorry, I interrupted. And, of course, George Martin was, the, was definitely the fifth Beatle. He was there because he... Yeah, he did. He did, he knew how to write music. He knew how to add to things, and and well, let's try let's try a string quartet for this song yesterday that you wrote, scrambled eggs. And okay, really? Yeah, let's give it a try. Okay, all right, let's do this. I'm gonna add this extra note because I like it that way. Okay, Paul, I'll try that. I'll put that in there. And they just knew by instinct. What, how to create? They, they, their creative juices were so full of 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 energy, and it exploded on all their discs, and they kept mm-hmm. wanting to do better and change and and create more and create more. And it's you know after they stopped touring, they made their home uh, the recording studio. Look at those albums that came out after Revolver, and Revolver wasn't kind of itself, was it? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, on that same point, why why do the Beatles still matter? Um, history, it's the greatest music. You know, they have a, there's a Beatles station now, right? Beatles Channel. I listen to it all the time. I know all the songs. Mm-hmm. Yet I still listen. Young mm-hmm. people like you discover the Beatles. Like me, there, there, there was nothing like the Beatles that ever happened before. The closest thing, I mean, yeah, Elvis was huge. But he didn't write his own music. And then he lost no. rock and roll by going into movies. You know, he fizzled out in the world of, of being a rock innovator. He was there at the start, and he gets a lot of credit up there with Chuck Berry and Little Richard and all those guys. Um, mm-hmm. But he wasn't the creator. He just had the way of singing that knocked people out. It was mm-hmm. fabulous. But the songs didn't come from his heart. They came from other people's hearts. The closest thing, Elton John was huge in the 70s. The closest thing anybody in the world ever came to was Michael Jackson. In the 80s, 
he was just he had his career as a kid, but then he came out with this whole series of albums, which he became very beloved all around the world, and he was the closest thing to the Beatles. But he still wasn't the Beatles, and in a hundred years, he'll be like a, a everyone else will be a, a side note. The Beatles will still be tops. They will be tops forever. Because nobody ever created that much music in such a short period of time. I mean, even Michael Jackson took three or four years of between his albums. So there yeah. was like ten songs and he had seven seven hits and two albums in a row or something. That's never been done. Give him credit. He did it. But yeah. you know, it took him five years from one album to the next. Whereas the Beatles, five years uh, 64 Meet the Beatles came out five years later and eight months later Abbey Road came out there it was there's the whole there's the whole creation but it really in seven, seven years was the recording there's a reason why the Beatles still rank number one whenever like Billboard does like greatest album or greatest artists of, artists of all time or Rolling Stone the Beatles always still rank number one they always will be there's just nobody like them and you speak to all the you hear if you listen to the Beatles channel they're getting all these celebrities to come on and say without the Beatles I wouldn't have you know, we woke up on February 10th the next morning after watching the Beatles on Ed Sullivan and every kid every kid in the, the country wanted to buy a guitar or drums including me <laughs> In fact, a few weeks later, my my father bought me a guitar. He said he was we were coming home from a restaurant and twisting shouts on the radio, and I'm bopping up and down in the backseat playing the air guitar. And he looked. My father's a band leader, a musician, so very influential <laughs> in my life. He said, "You want to play? Learn to play guitar?" I said, "Sure." The next day, I come home. There's a guitar in my bed. He said, uh, "His friend, my friend, at seven o'clock after dinner, you can walk to his house. He'll give you guitar lessons." So I did that for oh, wow. for the whole uh, a year and a half. Till I went to college. I had guitar lessons, learned how to play. Wow. But you couldn't find guitars. I mean, they, they, all the musicians say it. They, I mean, Max Weinberg. Oh, I wanted to be Ringo. I wanted to. I wanted. To, I wanted that. Little Steven mm -hmm. said, "That's what I want." But everybody did, and that's where all the rock stars came from. Pretty much after that, mm -hmm. everyone just wanted to be the Beatles. Yeah. Nobody could ever, and nobody could get to that height. Nobody. It's like if they're number one, there is no number two to number ten. The Stones could be number eleven, and Pink Floyd, and Elton, Zeppelin, the Who, but they get the top ten spots because nobody's even close. Yeah, and they all know it too. You know, there's no, there's no beating around them. Oh, we were better than them. There is no nobody says that. You know, the Beatles were, were, were the greatest. And look, 50 years later, 56 years later, Paul's still coming out. His last album is number one. Egypt Station <laughs> still puts out great songs, tours. Nobody tours like Paul. Nobody, you can't go to a concert in this world ever and compare anything that anyone does, no matter how good, to a Paul McCartney concert. They're just not no, even on the it, same planet. It's just magic. Have you seen him in concert? Twice. Oh, good. And what do you think? Um, I thought it was just phenomenal. It's, it's, I'm not a religious person, but it's like I was sitting in front of like Jesus. There or you someone. go. There you go. And I never, never missed the concert of 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 Paul's, 
never missed the concert of Ringo's. Every time they, every single tour they've done, I've seen. I would never. Ringo was also fantastic. I saw John in concert at the one-to-one concert. I'm in the film. I'm the only close-up of any person of any um, audience member. Really? Have you ever watched that film? Uh, not as of right now, but I know oh, that I'm going after it. this interview. Uh, now I'm going to dip, go back in time just once. And he says to everybody, now you all get your tambourines. And he play, so he played Come Together. And they showed this one close-up of a kid with a lot of hair. And that's me. And when Yoko was putting the film together, and they, they pointed out, look at that, look who that is. She, she started laughing hysterically. It was, quite a, it was coincidental. She, she recognized you. But yeah, so you know, I saw it in... Uh, I saw George's concerts, all four. I saw all four of them in New York, the '74 tour, two in Long Island, two in the Jer- in Madison Square Garden. When I saw them, and uh, I think right after the uh, the last one, the last night, there was a party. And boy, I'm telling you stories I should say for the book, but I've told some of these. Um, at the as a it was a, it was a, a nightclub called the Hippodrome. So mm-hmm. I went over there, waited outside, and um, Rabbi Shankar and Billy Preston, oh, Billy Preston was one of our time greatest guests too. Rabbi Shankar and Billy Preston come out of the uh, limo, go in there, and I'm waiting, and another limo comes up, and it's George. And at that same moment, John comes walking around the corner. So they both oh, enter, wow. and I'm standing there, there's no security outside. I'm standing there saying, okay, everybody back. <laughs> like I'm playing security to them. And uh, <sighs> so I got to, so I had a George for a second. And, uh, but yeah, that was the thrill to see both of them at the same time walking in together, John and George. And Upper East Side. That was a cool. I'm going to bring, I'm going to bring this back to the fest. Okay. I want to know what, what are your personal favorite fest memories from o- around the years? Well, I mean, the whole, they're all, they're all, every, every fest is very special to me. Um, I guess the guests, it's, it's the people that come to the show with staff. I mean, we have staff uh, that have been with us for over 40 years. It's like, it's not, they're not staff, they're family. It's like we get together every year. It's like seeing them and seeing all the people come to the show. We have regulars have been there every year. Some have been only, only the 30 years or 35 years or 40 years instead of 44 or 45. But they've been there and they're regulars. And it's like, we're there. We know why we're there. And it just, it's just, a, it's, you, don't, you don't have to, you don't need to talk about, well, you know, I'm a hardcore fan because of this. We all, we all know. We all got that. We all heard I want to hold your hand. We're that age. Yeah. We know. We know what it felt like. And it's, it's, it's a common bond and a common love that can't be broken. It's it's like a, a great experience. My wife Carol, she's a big Beatles fan. She was, we our second date was the second Beatle Fest in '75. Really, a great time, yeah. And she became my partner. She started. She's a graphic artist. She did all the designs over the years for 20, 30 years for the fest. Now my daughter does it um, with Carol's help, and uh, you know it's been a great journey just to meet all the special guests and. Uh, Lord, uh, all the wing, all wing, five, six wings members we met. Lawrence Jubas, a dear friend of ours. He's a 
greatest guitarist I ever met. Uh, you listen to, to, to Lawrence and you say, how many people are playing on that one guitar? I don't know if you ever heard him, but he's been our guest many, many times. And he's just an amazing guitarist. He's won acoustic guitar player of the year twice. Um, other things, it, it's like a whole event for people who've never been there. You, it's like we, we rent out an entire hotel. Yeah. And we get like 10, 12 ballrooms, 15 ballrooms full of activities going on at one time. You get a program book and you can, oh, do I want to yeah. see this author doing a discussion? I don't want to see a, a, a puppet show. We got a lot of young people coming. So Bob Abdul's <laughs> been doing puppet shows with us for years. We've had Liverpool since 1979. They're the finest Beatles tribute band. And the part that's unique is when our special guests, we have our musical guests, they come up and join them. So we had Ronnie Spector came up. She did she might she be my baby. And in rehearsal, on the first take, she turned around and said, you guys sound like the record. Oh, Ronnie, wow. This is Ronnie Spector talking about Brian Wilson's favorite song of all time. And he said, you sound like the record. So that's what they did. And for every artist, Peter Noon and Peter Asher occasionally and Chad and Jeremy and Donovan, Hurdy Gurdy Man, Atlantis. First time I have, I, he was on stage, he said, would you mind doing Atlantis for me? It's one of my favorite songs. He said, I, I'd be on it. And he did. And I'm sitting on the side of the stage and I, tears are rolling down my eyes. I'm crying. I'm saying, Donovan is right in front of me on my stage, playing to a packed house. You couldn't fit a toothpick in there. And he's playing Atlantis, one of my all-time favorite songs. And everyone, and in the chorus, everyone's singing along. They all knew it. I wasn't like, who's Donovan? I'm not. <laughs> Nowadays, you know, maybe not so many people know who he is or appreciate him. But back then, ooh, it was just, it was just incredible. And to see Billy Preston. Guy was dying. He couldn't get up on stage. He had his band he brought with him in 70, it's in 2005, or f I think so. And they were going to Germany and he could hardly get out of bed. And my brother-in-law was a doctor. He was sitting, came down side of the stage and he looked like he was dying. And they introduced Billy Preston and he walks up on stage really having difficulties, gets to the stop, top stair, he leaps onto the stage, sits at his piano, and does the concert of a lifetime, 45 minutes, and the place went nuts. And this never happened before. We were walking, Cal and I were walking with him arm in arm to the signing table, and people coming up and saying things we've never heard before. That was the greatest one of the experience. That was like an out-of-body experience. That was unbelievable. And yeah, he wasn't even playing Beatles songs. He was playing his songs. And yeah, of course, he played Get Back and you know, Don't Let Me Down and you know, his hits. But it was just, there was something about it that he, he knew that he probably doesn't have long to live. He must have known it. And within a year later, he did pass away. He had a, a kidney failure and... Um, but yeah, you know, he he was a, he, we had him as a guest many times, at least six, seven, eight times, and it's quite a guy, you know. But those are some I, of the best experiences in having the guests on stage doing the Vegas show and 
one year the pe- people came from all 50 states. That's another whole story. So um, we did the Peter and Gordon reunion. Mm-hmm. I, I got that together. They did a one night thing for Mike Smith in New York City with Paul mm-hmm. Schaefer. Um, I asked Gordon, who had been a guest before, I said, what about you guys doing a, a, a fest? He said, Mark, you know I'm in. Peter, you gotta ask. So I, at Carol's urging, a few months later, I called him and said, we'd like you to have a, have a, beat, a, a proper Peter and Gordon reunion. He said, I'll give you five minutes to tell me, to tell me why I should do it, and I'll get back to you tomorrow. So I did, he got back to me more the next day. I said, Mark, you're very persuasive, we'll do it. And then he loved this part he kept doing with Peter, with uh, with Gordon. Unfortunately, Gordon passed away a couple of years after that, but Peter's been still doing it. And now look where he is. It's great. What he's doing is amazing. Uh, I touched on this at the at the start, but I just want to say it again. Um, the first fest I went to was last Chicago. Yeah. And it was I truly one of the best experiences of my life. Well, thank you. Well, Just I I was embraced with such warm open arms by everybody, mm-hmm. and it was just you know after a year spent you know in and out of court with my family. My dad had died. Oh. That was the first time I had been able to let everything go and just be myself again. Well, we look forward to welcoming you back at future fests, whenever whenever this world will decide that we can do them again. But uh, yeah. we're working on some. Very, we never even announced a special guest for uh, for the Chicago show. We were about to, but you know, this, we didn't do it. So I would say this was the second best lineup, perhaps the best lineup. Would you want me to tell you now who they who they are? Sure. Not going to. <laughs> you have to wait. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Just oh. no. I, no, we're going to announce it very shortly. I don't have an okay. date. We're going to wait. It'll be somewhere after Ringo's birthday. But okay. It was really great lineup. We're going to try to get everybody who was there, who was scheduled to be there, to to do something, you know, at the virtual fest, like we did in Jersey. So plus others. So we're working on that. So stay tuned, everybody. Go to thefest.com. Plug plug. Go to Facebook. What's Facebook underscore Beatles Fest? I think I should know that by now. <laughs> I'll I'll put all the links and stuff okay, in the description. The and you know, anyone too part, lazy to type? <clears throat> when the Beatles started, you know, they were when the Beatles started doing their licensing. After they hadn't done it for uh, since Yellow Submarine, um, I guess the lawyers were saying, you know, if you don't start licensing merchandise, people are going to start bootlegging them and you'll have no recourse so mm-hmm. they started in 1983 and we were there at the start in fact it was harry nielsen who, who got them started it's another whole story um but we were there at the start and we've become the world's largest beatles mail order business and uh we're still doing that so go to the fest.com we have what we have coming out now is arriving hopefully today in new beatles shirts the letter b shirts there's a whole bunch of them, so you can walk around. And uh, of course, I have my Sergeant Pepper shirt on. By what I chose, the Let It Be shirts are not in yet, but they are coming in. <clears throat> and there's a whole bunch, you know, we, CDs and books with the with the people where people can buy books that are signed by the authors. Peter Asher, as I said before, Mark Lewison, 
all the hardcover copies we sold were signed by Mark. And uh, Philip Norman, his book on Paul, all signed. We've had, we had uh, Linda's diary book, Polaroid diary book. Um, mm -hmm. Paul put it together with, with, with um, Mary. Hold on a second. Um, with his daughters and they put it out and they put a limited edition out of 325 copies that was signed by Paul McCartney and this it was a, a famous book company and they usually sell them only in their stores but since the New York store had been closed for renovations they allowed me to sell them aren't they called Genesis? no not Genesis, Genesis also we've been working, working with since 1979 and 80 um mm -hmm. But it's called Tashin Books. And we sold uh, over 25% of the books that were offered around the world. Just through oh, wow. $2,000 books. There are none left. They're all, they're all sold. But they kept calling and saying, Mark, we found some more copies if you'd like to sell them. And we did. And every time we put them up, we sold them. I mean, I never thought we'd sell that many. That's a lot. It's a big investment. But. One guy called and said he wants to complete his collection of, of Beatles autographs. So he did. So we have, you know, we have all the book, Bruce Spicer and Ken Womack and Jude Kessler and Kid O'Toole and <clears throat> everyone who comes out with a book now we sell, we sell signed copies. So mm -hmm. this is the only place in the world where people can get the signed copies of all the books and, and CDs. All of Lawrence's CDs and Billy J. Kramer's book and CD and, and uh, all Neil's books, CDs we used to get signed, but obviously we can't do that anymore. Neil Linus, um, but Peter's CDs, they sell like crazy. We still, still have them. We're always running out of them. So. And I'll plug for you. If any of you listening have not <clears throat> been to a fest for Beatle fans, uh, whenever they start up again, do yourself the biggest favor in the world. Go to the fest. Go to the fest. Yes. You will not regret it. You won't. I promise. If you listen no. to this, you won't regret it. And a splendid, a splendid time, time is guaranteed for all. Yes, it is. And uh, it's great. So hopefully we'll be on in October for John's 80th birthday. But it's beyond our control. The governor is going to have to decide what the limits are in the state in, uh, of New Jersey. And we'll see if it's going to work. We have great plans for it, but it's all waiting. If not, the next show's next year or the weekend of March 21st, I believe, in Jersey, in Jersey, High Regency, Jersey City. And Chicago's dates next year, same as this year's, one day off, August 6th through 8th of next year. Um, mm -hmm. Hopefully, the world will be back to having events. We all miss live events. We all miss going to see concerts. You know, oh, how yeah. to cancel. Ringo had to cancel his two tours. You know, everybody, all the every artist that they're home can't do any tours right now. And and music people are missing music like crazy, live music. So we may have a surprise for August this year. We're working on something to see if it can, if it can be physically done. So on that note, Ethan, peace and love. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Huh? It's it's been an honor. To everyone else out there listening. Thanks for listening. You can go home now.
Oh, good. <laughs> Bye. Fans on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Phillip. This has been a Showtown production.